Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. And we are in chapter 10, and we left off in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14. Everybody have a good 4th of July? All right. Let's pray together. Father, as we open up our Bibles tonight to, to hear your word, Father, we just ask that it wouldn't be a tradition that we do without passion, without excitement, without desire. We think of the parable of the sower, and we know that your word is the seed, and we want our hearts to be fertile soil where you can plant your word in us. Lord, may you encourage, would you bring correction and conviction, and would you bless our time as we go through your word this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you were here last week, we spent some time in the first 13 verses. So let's look at verse 13, where it says, no temptations overtaken you, except that is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And in light of that, flee idolatry. God has provided a way of escape from idolatry. What's an idol? An idol is anything that we put above Jesus Christ. And the scripture is telling us to actively run away from idolatry and pursue the worship of the one true living God. My heart will drift towards idolatry if I'm not careful. That's going to be the natural tendency of my heart is to want to put things above Jesus Christ because my heart's wicked. And so this has to be intentional. Run from idolatry and run towards the Lord. Run to him in worship and making sure that he's the priority of our lives. In verse 15, I speak as to you wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. That's a little bit of spiritual pressure right there. That's what that is. I speak to wise men. He's assuming that there's a certain level of maturity. If someone sits down to have a conversation with you and they're saying, I'm speaking to you as a wise individual, what does that make you do? <laughs> I, better, I better be wise. You know, they're, they're speaking to me, expecting that I'm going to have a certain level of maturity in this discussion. He wants us to evaluate this in verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The church of Corinth has come to misuse the communion table, which we're going to celebrate in just a moment here. So this question is asked, when we take communion, what are we having fellowship with? The word communion, it means fellowship. Communion with the blood of Christ. When we break the bread, do not we commune with the body of Christ. We're remembering his broken body. We're remembering his shed blood. And the church of Corinth had gotten to the place that even though they were going through the outward motions of communion, they were no longer entering into fellowship with the blood of Christ, entering into fellowship with the broken body of Christ. Verse seven, for we, though many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. What makes us one tonight? What makes us the body of Christ? It's what Christ has done for us. As we come and celebrate communion, and we believe that Christ has died for us collectively as a group, that's what makes us one. 
What makes us one with other believers throughout Colorado Springs? It's the body of Jesus Christ. Believers throughout our city may be celebrating communion tonight or, or this weekend. And as they celebrate communion and they remember the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, that's what makes us one. Is there anything more powerful that could make us one? I don't think so. It's the body of Jesus Christ. It's the broken bread for all of us that brings us into that place of, of unity. He brings an illustration from the Old Testament. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? So Israel would come to the altar, and as they ate of the sacrifices, as they were partakers of the sacrifices, it brought them to this place of unity. There's unity at the altar. They were all worshipers of the one true living God. This is a spiritual truth. Where do we find unity? In the broken body of Jesus Christ and as we worship Jesus Christ. That's where real friendship, unity, koinonia, sharing things in common. If you want unity in your marriage, unity with your kids, unity, unity with friendships, you focus on Christ. You worship together. Have you noticed those that you're closest to over the years are the ones that you share Christ in common? where you speak about Christ, you encourage each other in Christ, you, you pray together. As you spend time at the altar, that's where unity's found. And that was even true in the Old Testament. In verse 19, what am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? This long theme through eight, nine, and 10 is what do we do with food offered to idols? So Paul comes back to this subject and he says, the idol isn't anything, and the food offered to idols isn't anything. Rather, that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So it may not be a big deal to eat some meat that's been offered to an idol, because an idol's not anything. And what's being offered is not anything. But if you do worship demons, then that's something. If you're trying to mix idolatry, and worshiping these demons with communion where you're lifting up the cup of blessing with one hand and then lifting up the cup of idolatry with another hand, that's where Paul's saying the two can't mix. There can't be compromise in that way. We do have a deeper understanding of idolatry. There's a demonic realm behind the concept of worshiping these idols. The idol isn't anything, but the philosophy behind it is the lies from the pit of hell. So let's put this into the modern vernacular. You know, if someone's driving down the road and they've got the Playboy symbol on their car, then sexual sin is probably their idol. And what do you think is behind that? It's Satan destroying someone's life. And so here's this symbol of their idolatry, but there's the lies of the enemy that goes behind it. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, you can't mix. You shouldn't mix communion and idolatry. You shouldn't miss the cup of blessing and the table of demons. In verse 22, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So God gives us an example of how passionate he is about us and that Christ is the head of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. So we think of a marriage and the godly jealousy that's inside of a marriage. If someone in the marriage is unfaithful, the spouse that's been cheated on isn't going to just go, well, that's great. You know, I think, I think I should share. 
It sounds like a good idea. There's a godly jealousy that's there and, and a spouse saying, no, this is a monogamous, exclusive relationship. And that's just a small example of the way that God feels towards us. And he says, I'm jealous for your love. I'm jealous for, to be the only God, not the one of, of many gods. And there's that godly jealousy that comes from him, a convicting question, are we stronger than he? All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Paul keeps mentioning this. There's so much freedom in Christ. There's so much liberty in Christ. I can eat meat that's been offered to an idol and not be worshiping that idol. But he comes back to this question. He says, is it helpful and does it edify? And those are always the two questions when we're trying to examine a liberty in our life. Should I be engaging in this thing? Well, is it helpful and is it edifying? Is it helpful in my relationship with the Lord? And is it building other people up in Christ? Verse 24, let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. So this is the heart of the text. This is the heart of what's going wrong at the communion table. It's the heart of what's going wrong with their freedoms as they've forgotten to seek someone else's benefit. It was a, a selfish thing instead of, I want to be serving others. I want God to be glorified in the way that I serve others. Verse 25, eat what has ever sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. So if you're in Corinth going to the meat market, don't ask whether it's been offered to an idol. Just go, praise the Lord, it's on sale. <laughs> it's gonna be filet mignon tonight. Verse 17, if any one of those who do not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go, Eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. Paul's not referring to an unbeliever in salvation here. He's referring to some believer that doesn't have the faith that they can eat something that's offered to an idol. So if you're going over to someone's house and you know that they're hung up on this issue of meat being offered to idols, you don't ask. You know, you don't, you don't lay that out uh, before them. You're respecting the area that their conscience is struggling in. And that's just simple brotherly love for one another inside of the family of God. If, if someone has a conviction over an area where you feel freedom in, and we're not talking about areas where God clearly says it's sin, then you don't go flaunt your liberty in front of them. You, you respect them in that, that, that context. And that's what Paul is saying. Verse 28 but if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who told you, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that of another. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? So if you are told this was offered to an idol, Paul's saying it's better not to eat it because you never know who you're gonna stumble the person that told you that may be of that conviction that you're not supposed to offer meat unto idols. Let's read down to verse 33. But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's quite a challenge. Whatever you do, even what you eat and what you drink, no matter what you do, 
can you say, I'm doing this for the glory of God? That'll bring some conviction into to our lives. Give no offense either to the Jew or to the Greek or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many that they may be saved. So sometimes we might go, well, why should my liberty be judged by somebody else's conscience? I have freedom in the Lord to do this, but now why am I being held to this standard simply because they have a hard time with it? Shouldn't they just grow up? And Paul's saying, no, I value them. I value their their spiritual growth. I'm more concerned about God's glory than my freedoms. By considering others, God is glorified. And that's the example that that Paul has given. Let's go into chapter 11, verse 1. Imitate me just as I also imitate Christ. Paul is writing this in context of the issue of personal freedoms. And Paul's saying, you can watch my life and I'll lay down a personal freedom in order for God to be glorified. So imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's quite a statement when you stop and think about it. And there's a lot of truth there for us. At the end of the day, we're all imitating somebody. We put somebody at that place. We're saying, I want to model my life after them. Hopefully that's Jesus. Hopefully it's nothing less than Jesus Christ. I want to imitate him. I want to worship him. I want to follow him. And then there's going to be people, unfortunately, that are imitating us, right? Sometimes words fall out and your dad falls out, your mom falls out, right? You're like, where did that come from? You know, Man, I sounded just like my dad. I sounded just like my mom. And then sometimes when you're watching your kids, you're like, I know exactly where they got that from. They got that one from me. You know, my kids are a mirror of me. Ouch, you know, that, that really hurt. There's somebody that's imitating us. And so we want to imitate Christ because there are people that are following our example as well. In verse 2, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I had delivered them to you. When Paul says traditions, he's really speaking of the way the church conducted themselves when they gathered together for fellowship. Paul's saying, I I set this up in a way that had decency and order and was glorifying to God, and you guys have thrown that out, and I want you to get back to those things that I have taught you. In chapter 7, Paul discussed questions about marriage. In chapters 8 through 10, it was Christian liberty. And now in chapter 11, he's going to deal with the conduct of women in church while they're gathered together in the church family and also communion. So this is where we're headed in the next few verses is head coverings. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, dun, Here we go. Verse 3. But I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of a woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So there's an authority that God has set up. And first he says, I want you to know that the head of every man is Christ. So, so men, we should be looking to Jesus Christ for leadership. We should be submitted to him wholly and completely. And then the head of a woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So ladies, your husband, this is speaking specifically to your husband, is that you're to come underneath your husband's leadership. So ladies, if you're single, choose your husband carefully because he will become your head. He will become 
your leader uh, that you're choosing to follow. And then it says the head of Christ is God. So Jesus submits himself to the Father. Jesus is the example of submission. And this is so important, ladies. I hope you hear me on this. Dear sisters in Christ, I hope you hear this. Are you listening now? Is submission is not an issue of being inferior. How do we know that? Because Christ submitted to the Father and they were complete equals. Now men, hear me on this. Do I have you men, husbands, if you're your husband? This, your wife coming underneath your leadership does not make you superior to her. It's God setting up roles and authority Submission doesn't reflect a hierarchy, and we see that with Christ. He submitted to the Father, but they were complete equals. Inside of that equality, however, God has set up his divine order. This is also taught for us in Ephesians chapter 5. Verse 4, every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. And this is interesting because in the Jewish tradition, it was that the men would cover their heads. And still, when you go to the Temple Mount today, and I'm sure you've probably seen pictures, the men have their, their heads covered. But here, Paul is saying that men, if you pray with your head covered, it's dishonoring. And that probably goes back uh, into 2 Corinthians, where we find now that we can behold God's glory without a veil. Uh, and so Paul says, you're not held to having to wear a head covering men. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, for that is the one and the same as if her head were shaved. So in studying this chapter, we've come to realize we've got it all wrong. So we've got head coverings for sale in the bookstore. <laughs> Ladies, we would encourage you to go. <laughs> Donnie's got some extra head coverings if you can, can pick those up. So let's go on into verse six. No, so what, what's the issue here? What, what's going on? Why don't uh, we here at Rocky Mountain Calvary and churches as a whole that ladies are not uh, required to wear head coverings? Because we have to understand what's happening in the church of Corinth at the time is that in this city, there was a lot of prostitution. And ladies that were prostitutes wouldn't have their head covered. It was a clear sign that they were available. They would shave their heads and those type of things. And so that cultural backdrop really helps us to understand this text. Also, when we get a few more verses into this, Paul says that we don't have any such custom for all of the churches. So Paul is dealing with an issue that's taking place in Corinth. He's not establishing that every church everywhere should wear head coverings. There are certain things when you go to certain churches that you don't do because of what it communicates. I remember when I went on my first missions trip, uh, I, well, it wasn't my first missions trip, but my first missions trip other than Mexico, we went to Mongolia, and in our cultural training, they said, don't put your foot up like this to see the bottom of your shoe, you know, and also, because it's extremely disrespectful, and don't do the thumbs up sign because it's the equivalent of flipping someone the bird here in America, you know, <laughs> and so, yeah, that's pretty common, and it was a sports missions trip, you're like, good shot, way to go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> You don't do that. You know, you can't, can't do that. So understanding this background of what it meant for the women to, to not have their, their heads covered. We need to go a little bit further in this, though, because 
There's too many places in scripture where people are being too liberal with this, that this was cultural. When it's clearly not cultural, it's a truth that's given for all times for all people. And the only reason we have the out on this is because Paul gives us the out in a few more verses. Does that make sense? So I think that we're in real danger of almost throwing out the scripture completely because people get to a section that they don't like, that they don't want to surrender their life to, and they go, oh, that's just cultural. That was for that group of people at that time. I wouldn't be telling you this with this kind of confidence if it wasn't for Paul and what he wrote in a few more verses. And he's the one that tells us we don't have this custom in all of these churches. So let's keep going in verse five and six. For if a woman is not covered, let her also be shorn, but it is shameful for a woman to be shorn or shaved, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought to ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. We learn a lot of important things in this discussion of head coverings, and it's declared that the woman is the glory of man. And that, that's really true. It means shining or reflection. You can tell a lot by a man by looking at the countenance of his wife. And that's convicting for us as husbands. Husband, take some time to really look into your wife's eyes, look to her countenance, and she's reflecting something. That she's going to naturally reflect what the husband is portraying. And that's what it says here. But the woman is the glory of the man. She, she's the one to, to be honored and, and cherished. And it says a lot about our servant leadership when we look into her eyes. In verse 8, For man is not from woman, but woman is from man. Nor was man created for the woman, but woman for man. And so in creation, we see an order where God created Adam first, then Eve. It's not an issue of who is superior. And ladies, you're complimenting your husbands, not competing with your husband. For this reason, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now that's a pretty obscure verse. Here you're talking about men and women and the glory of man and the glory of woman. And they're like, okay, now ladies, you need to have your heads covered because of the angels. You're like, and then it just goes on. That's like, there's no explanation. And right on to, to verse 11. So, so what does that mean? I don't know for sure. All I can do is, is think that angels understand order. They understand the importance of order as they saw a third of the angels fall. And so there's this reference to to the angels. But we do know this from verse 10 that the angels are paying attention to the gathering of believers. Verse 11, nevertheless, neither is a man independent of woman nor woman independent of man in the Lord. For as a woman came from man, even so man also came through woman, but all things are from God. So even though Adam was created first, and God has called Adam to be the leader, no men would be on the planet if it weren't for women. And you can't change that. As much as you want to try to change that, that's the way that God has designed it. So there is this interdependency upon one another. And that's the way that the Lord has designed it. And all things come from the Lord. Men and women were clearly needing one another. Verse 13, judge among yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God 
with her head uncovered. This is a side note in this text, but it's very clear that it's permitted inside of a public gathering for women to pray and prophesy. There would some that would say, you know, women shouldn't pray when there's mixed company of men and women, or, or women shouldn't prophesy if there's mixed company between men and women, but there's a clear allowance here for a woman to pray and, and prophesy from, from the text. Verse 14 does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's a dishonor to him? Now let's talk about this a little bit. Some of you guys might be having long hair and you're like, so now we're selling head coverings in the bookstore and you know, we're cutting long hair for the men uh, out, out in the foyer. There's times in the Old Testament where God commanded men to grow long hair, right? With the Nazarite vow in saying, this is a commitment that I want you to make uh, before God. This has a lot more to do with the heart than it does to do with the length of a guy's hair or a woman having her head covered. It goes back to this principle of mutual edification in the gathering together of believers. So for the ladies to come in communicating, I'm available, that's not a good thing to communicate inside of the, the body of Christ. And, and for the men to come in a way where they're, they're not honoring unto the Lord, it, it's more about that mutual edification than the length of the hair or the head being covered. This is our, our verse that lets us know, ladies, that uh, you don't need to be wearing head coverings in verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone seems to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. So there it is, right from scripture, right from Paul's mouth, as he's saying, you don't have to fight over this, and this is not something that gets carried over to all churches for all times. If we were in the context of going to the Middle East, and there was a, a church that birthed up in, in the Middle East based on their culture, it may be that women would have their head coverings for the purpose of the gospel to go, go forth, but it's not this requirement that's being placed on all women for, for all time. So it's important to understand that cultural background there. So everybody can breathe a big sigh of relief. And ladies, if you meet other women or men that tell you you have to have your head covered, you can go to verse 16 and say, well, what about verse 16? Because you will meet some along the way that will say, if you really love Jesus, when you go to church, you'd cover, cover your head and you'd put that on and, and you can take them to verse uh, 16. Now we're gonna focus on communion, which is super exciting. First, there's a correction, then there's instruction about communion. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. This is tragic. What if that was God's commentary on our gathering together? Say, so you know what? There's actually more damage that's done when you get together than good. And that's the condition of the church of Corinth. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. So they're coming together as fractured groups. For there must also be fractions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and the other is drunk. Communion was celebrated in a meal, 
they would gather together for a meal and remember Christ's broken body and his shed blood. But as they came together, some were coming starving. They hadn't eaten all day. They hadn't eaten in a couple days. And they come to, to the church, and now they're eating while someone else doesn't get served. And then on top of that, you've got somebody else who's drunk. So you can imagine all of the dysfunction and distraction that's happening, and nobody's really remembering the purpose of this any longer. They're not stopping to think about Christ's broken body and his shed blood. And this is what Paul has to put into order. Verse 22, what, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Paul's saying, why don't you eat at home? So that when you come, you're not starving and you can make sure that everybody gets enough to eat and you can focus on remembering what the Lord's Supper is all about. Man, if you're gonna drink, why don't you drink at home? You don't need to be drunk here. And by the way, you shouldn't be drunk with wine. I can hear Paul saying that as he instructed us that out of Ephesians chapter five. I don't really know if it was right for my brother and I to do this, but when we were in college, we made a list that said, you know you're a church kid if, and we put down all of these things that you just come up with if you've grown up in in the church. And one of the things that we wrote down there were things that I probably shouldn't say. (laughs) But one of them we did write that I can say is, you know you're a church kid if, you consider communion to be a late night snack, right? Because if you're a kid and you're growing up around the church and I see kids doing it here, as they come up to the communion table and they don't know better and they're like, who's gonna drink all that juice? Can't let that juice just, who's gonna drink that? And then they see all the crackers there and they're like, oh man, I'm kind of hungry right now. They ran out of fishy crackers in the children's ministry right? And then here comes mom and dad. Hey, that's not a midnight snack. You know, it's not a late night snack. It's remembering what Christ, Christ has done. So we go on to verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. So now we have the instruction on communion. What I received from the Lord that which I delivered to you. This is the key to spiritual impact is Christ teaching us, touching our heart, convicting our heart, challenging our heart, and we're sharing what we've received. Paul's sharing what he's received from from communion. It's not something that we try to cook up or conjure up or manipulate. I've got to have an impact for Christ. It's when our heart and our life is open to the Lord and he starts to pour into us and then we're simply pouring out what we've received from the Lord. And he says, The Lord Jesus, in the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. He takes us back to that last supper when Christ gave the instructions on communion. Judas is one of those who was served communion. He was the one who betrayed Christ. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The disciples don't get this at that moment this is my body that's broken for you. And Jesus begins to break the bread and hand it out to them. But they would come to understand as they saw Jesus 
hanging upon the cross. He is the bread of life that was broken for us. And notice how personal it is. And this is what God desires in every time that we take communion, that it wouldn't be about just the physical act of eating and meeting hunger, that we wouldn't come in an altered state of mind through drunkenness or drugs, but, but we would come with a sober mind meditating upon what Christ has done and thinking about his body that was broken for you. That's amazing. That's amazing every time that we take communion that Jesus, the creator of the universe, would come in human flesh, die upon the cross, and be broken for me personally. It's amazing that Christ was broken for the world, but when we take communion, it's for you. Christ was broken so that you could be made whole, and you're reflecting and you're remembering the ways that Christ was broken. And in that element of communion, we look back. We look back at what Christ has done. We do this in remembrance of him. As you take of communion, think of all of the places in which Christ's body was broken. I think it's extremely significant. We think of his back being beaten and he was, he was whipped and his flesh was torn off down to the very bone. Why was Christ whipped for us? Why, did he, why was his body broken from his back? What is God communicating to us through that? Isaiah tells us by his stripes we are healed. He brings healing into our lives. When Christ gave his back for us, we know he's never gonna turn his back on us. Do you ever feel like, has Christ forsaken me? Will Christ forgive me? Has he given up on me? Look at the back of Jesus Christ. Look at what he has, has gone through. Do you ever feel personal rejection and wondering how do I ever get healing from that? How, how do I ever get set free from that? How will the bitterness ever leave? I've been hurt so bad. Look at the back of Jesus Christ. It happened from the house of God. It, it happened from the religious leaders. They were the ones that turned him over to be beaten in that way. And we look at the back of Christ and we're healed from, from that bitterness. What are some other places where Christ's body was broken? from his hands. We know he was nailed to the cross from his hands, probably right through his, his wrists to hold him there upon the cross. This is so significant that Christ, as a risen Savior, still bears the wounds of the cross. We will behold Jesus as the lamb who was slain. Thomas could put his hands into the wounds of Jesus Christ. As we remember, Christ, you were broken, your hands, because hands are significant, aren't they? You think about the, the hands of your parents or the hands of your grandparents and how they, they've cared for you. You know, I, I think of a man's hands who's worked hard with his hands and he's provided for his family and they're like leather, right? And you're like, oh man. And then, you know, you think of your, your hands of your grandma as they got old and, and wrinkled and shrivelly and all of those apple pies that were baked. My grandma Warren, she just made the best pies, you know, and I, I think of her hands, and hands are significant. You think of someone reaching out a hand to you and helping you, and God gave you the ultimate hand of salvation, the ultimate hand of, of redemption. Also with our hands, we've done many things that we shouldn't have done, and Christ died for us so that we could, could be forgiven. But also his feet were nailed to, to the cross. Why the feet? Because Jesus is committed to finishing the journey with us. He's going to walk with us throughout this life into eternal life. You probably heard today that the stock market was down for three and a half hours due to a technical difficulty. 
They don't think they got hacked. It was just a technical difficulty. Jesus doesn't have technical difficulties. He doesn't go down for three and a half hours. He doesn't not hear you for three and a half hours. There's no feet, there's no place where your feet will go that Jesus will not go with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. Our feet also have taken us to places that we shouldn't go, to do things that we should have never done, and Jesus died for us. It's significant that his feet were nailed to the cross, but also the crown of thorns was placed upon the head of Jesus Christ. Why the crown of thorns? The thorns were a result of sin, right? And the curse in the garden. And he took the curse upon himself. Oftentimes, the biggest struggle that we have is in our mind. We commit thoughts. It goes beyond temptation. We enter into temptation. We take the bait. We allow thoughts to dwell that should never dwell there. And that's probably some of the grossest depravity in our hearts and our lives. And yet Jesus bled. He bled through the crown of thorns to say, Eric, I know all of your thoughts and I died for all of that wickedness inside of your mind. There's one more place where Jesus bled from and it's from his side. He's already dead and they come to make sure the soldiers that he was dead and they pierce his side and blood and water flow out of his side. What's God communicating in that? Remember, this is his body that was broken for us. His blood and water is what takes place when a woman gives birth. There's blood and there's water. And Jesus brought about life when he bled from his side. It's where the bride of Christ was born. Out of the side of Jesus Christ, we become the bride of Christ. Sometimes when I take communion and you eat of it, you think about how Christ's body was crushed and it was broken for us. The love of God. It's hard to be in that place of not believing that God loves you when you really stop to meditate upon what Christ has done in communion. Why does Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me? Because we tend to forget. We tend to lose focus. What's really important? What should I be focusing on? What should be the object of my heart? What should I be sharing with others? It's the broken body of Jesus Christ. It's the shed blood of Jesus Christ, keeping the main thing the main thing. Isn't it such a wonderful way that Christ wanted to be remembered? Through a meal. Through a meal where you get together with those that you love and you take time to think about his broken body and his shed blood. As we focus on the pain of Christ, Christ's heart is that we would then enter into the joy of what we gained through his pain. There's something sobering about communion, but there's also this deep celebration that God would love us in this way. In verse 25, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. A new covenant. Church, we would be in so much trouble if it wasn't for the new covenant, Amen. The old covenant was this, if then, if you obey, then you're going to be blessed. But if you disobey, you're going to be cursed. Well, consequently, he was walking in a lot of curses, a lot of consequences. The new covenant's not do, 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 but it's done, done, done. It is finished. Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we're in a new contract with God that's based on what he's not done, not what we do. Does that mean we just go around living however we want? No, because we've been touched by the grace of God. We want to live a holy life, 
but it's not conditional on this is what I do to earn or deserve God's favor. It's the new covenant of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no stronger covenant than the blood of Christ. Going back to Abraham, covenant was brought through animal sacrifice. The blood said this means business. It was a blood contract. And God has made a blood contract with us that the price has been paid. There's atonement because of the blood of Jesus. How do we know we're forgiven? Because of the blood of Christ. One of the things that I love personally about taking the cup is first to understand the Jewish custom of marriage. If a guy was going to propose to a gal, he would hand her a cup. And if she would say yes, she would drink of the cup. Every time we drink of the cup of communion, we're saying yes to the Lord. We're saying I do to the Lord. We're saying, yes, I, I'm your bride. I'm entering into this relationship with you. But also, on a real practical sense, you can't take communion and drink of the cup without lifting your head. And the Psalms tell us that God is the lifter of our head. And some of you are saying, well, I could do it if I used a straw. <laughs> well, that's cheating, right? And that's God's intent is, is we take communion and we celebrate his forgiveness that we go from a place of shame to a place of rejoicing. And verse 26 says, for as often as you drink this bread, eat this bread, excuse me, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Communion is something that needs to be done often, regularly. We take communion here on Wednesday nights, every third weekend of the month, not to be religious, but because we want to focus. We want to spend time remembering what Christ has done for us. So we look back in communion, but we also look forward. We proclaim his death until he comes. Every time we take the cup, we're saying, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ also results in the future where Christ is going to return for his church. We look forward to him coming. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Because of this verse, a lot of people don't take communion. They go, well, I'm not worthy to come to take communion and I'm afraid that I'm gonna bring judgment upon myself. But what does it say? To not take communion in an unworthy manner. What's the context of that in 1 Corinthians? They weren't giving worth to the broken body of Jesus and his shed blood and they were coming drunk and they were coming simply to eat food and they weren't taking time to remember what Christ has done. So it has nothing to do with whether we're worthy or not, but it has everything to do with the attitude in which we come. If you're coming with that attitude of, Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for me. I wanna take some time to reflect on your broken body and your shed blood. You're coming with the right attitude. I think the enemy has kept a lot of people from taking communion because they've misunderstood this verse. If we had to wait to take communion until we were worthy, when would we ever come? Communion's all about Jesus welcoming unworthy sinners who've trusted him as they're giving worth to his sacrifice. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we look back, we look ahead, but we also look within. We go, God, is there any sin in my heart my life that I need to confess to you as I take communion? We're not confessing for salvation. We're confessing for relationship, saying, God, I want to be close to you. I don't want there to be anything between you and me. So, Lord, I'm examining my heart. 
oh Lord, I'm gonna confess my anger to you. I'm gonna confess my bitterness to you. I'm gonna confess my covetousness to you, my, my grumbling spirit to you, and just things that the Holy Spirit starts to bring to mind. So we come to communion tonight, go to a quiet place, and we just go through this process of thinking about the Lord, what he's done, thanking him for what he's done and who he is. God, Lord, I'm so thankful that you're coming back. and That day seems sooner and sooner. God, I want to take some time for your Holy Spirit to speak to me and to reveal sin to me. I want to repent of that and confess it before the Lord. How much time do we really take to be serious about sin and to confess it before God? Because our sin means Jesus had to die for it. And that brings a seriousness to my sin. I can't justify it anymore. And then how many times do I get to a place where I'm broken over it and I want to ask God to forgive me? I want to be in right relationship with the Lord. It's really important to have this be a regular part of our relationship with God because we don't want things to go unchecked. And one of the things that happens in the summertime is the trash gets really stinky, doesn't it? You put it out in the garage, it gets hot, and then all of a sudden it starts to stink. And man, things get stinky in our heart and our life when they don't get dealt with, amen? And we wanna have that trash day regularly with the Lord where we're just allowing him to go through every room of our life to, to clean house before him. Verse 29 for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. Because of the attitude in which they approached communion, some of them were experiencing sickness and weakness and even death. That's the seriousness in which God takes communion. It's important for us to have that right attitude as we come. But again, we're not coming on our worth. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. That's an awesome truth. If I took time to judge myself, then I wouldn't put myself in the position where others were judging me. But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. We want to be in a place where we're receiving God's correction so we don't have to receive the world's condemnation. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, lest when you come together for judgment and the rest I will set in order when I come. Important application of this section of scripture is be mindful of one another as we gather together. I think something, that's something we have to fight against in the American context because everything's so personal, everything's so individualistic. It's so easy to come to a church service and only think about ourselves and not take time to think about, well, how's the person doing next to me? You know, what, what's going on in their life? And, you know, did I just step in front of them or, or cut them off or those kind of things? And I want to be kind. I want to be considerate to them, making sure that their needs are being met as well and not just my own. So we're going to apply this tonight. Uh, Jason's going to come back and lead us in worship and take some time at the communion table. Go back to a quiet place in the sanctuary. You know, this is your sanctuary. This is your place to, to meet with the Lord. Husbands and wives, if you want to take uh, communion together, that, that's what's going to bind us together is spending time at the Lord's feet. And then just work through this passage. Jesus, thank you so much for what you've done for me. Maybe it's been a while since you've thought about, wow, this blood was shed for me. His body was broken for me. This is the, the blood of the new covenant. Jesus, you're coming back. 
That's certainty as we go through this life. Jesus, you're coming back for, for your church. Examine your heart before the Lord. As Jason shared in worship, maybe you don't know Christ. Maybe you haven't come to that place of ever trusting Jesus for salvation. We would love for you to receive Christ before you take communion. We've got a prayer team here on the sides and come let us know. I wanna trust Christ as my savior. I've been convicted of my sin. I'm turning away from my sin and I'm asking Jesus to forgive me. I'm applying the blood of Jesus to my heart and my life that I believe he's God, that he died and rose again. Christ be my savior and then take communion with us. Maybe you've stopped taking communion as a believer because you've been feeling like you're unworthy. And the enemy's been using this section of scripture against you. Come and take communion. You have that attitude of appreciation for Christ. And you're gonna sit at his feet. You're coming based on who he is, not who you are. So let's pray and may God really meet you in a special way at the, the communion table. Let's stand together. Jesus, I know there's a lot of hurts uh, in life. There's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of brokenness. A lot of times it's caused by our own sin. Sometimes it's caused by the sin of others. And Jesus, we know you're our resurrected Savior and you're here with us. And would you meet us in communion in a very special way? If there's people that don't know you, may you draw them to yourself. And God, would you protect us from communion ever just becoming a tradition or a ritual where we don't pause and think about you and do this in remembrance of you. So God, meet us afresh in communion tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.